Hello, I'm Stephanie Luo. Welcome to my podcast, Surface Time, aka Confessions of a Diving Junkie, where I chit chat with people who are like me, scuba diver and chronic addicts to being underwater. During the surface time today, I chatted with Nico Dehuish, a French photographer and Paddy instructor living in Shanghai. He first caught the travel bug at the impressionable age of 19 and has since lived and traveled across America, Africa, and Southeast Asia. When we spoke, he was caught in the middle of the lockdown in Shanghai. Somehow, he has managed to walk around the streets of Shanghai and documented the events happening during the lockdown in April 2022. Hi, Nicole. Hi, Stephanie. How are you? I'm good, and you? I'm all right. Still locked down. I'm still in lockdown. So what is like being locked down in Shanghai at the moment? Because uh, when we are recording this episode now, it's in April 2022. Mm. And then... And you guys in Shanghai has been through a long period of locking down in and out. So what has that been like? It's been a little bit frustrating to say the least, because we don't know until when we're locked down. So it was supposed to be four days, but we're entering the fifth week now. <laughs> so it's a very long four days, but I think the experience has been very different between different people. And as per my personal experience, I can't really complain too much. My fridge is full of food. My neighbors are rather nice and, and open-minded and I haven't tested positive yet. So I was able to stay at home and not be sent to isolation camp. It's just a bit boring and, and frustrating because we don't know when we're out, but I have a ton of things I can do or read at home. It's all right. Hanging there. Actually, I want to ask you, where was your last memorable dive? Actually, my last dive was memorable, but not really for positive reasons. I haven't been diving where I usually dive, which is Southeast Asia and the Philippines in particular. Since March 2020, when I was in the Philippines teaching and then came back to China. But I've actually dived in China last year in a very different environment than what I'm used. I wanted to start learning how to cave dive because that's about the only interesting diving that there is in China. And so I started learning to dive with a dry suit, which I had never done before in a lake called Thousand Islands Lake in China. It's very cold, very murky waters. So that was one day of diving in the whole year of last year. And it was memorable because I couldn't even see my fins um, and I couldn't feel my toes. You, you were doing dry suit. What is like, I'm actually not experienced dry suit diving. So that means saying that you're very well insulated inside, but then your limbs, mm -hmm. your, your face, your feet are not really parts of the insulation, are they? Yeah, it's an insulated suit. Basically, you have like joints at the wrist, at the ankles and at the neck. And so your feet, hands and head are exposed 
to the water, but apart from that, you're actually completely dry. So you're supposed to wear like winter clothes uh, under your dry suit because it doesn't bring you as much heat as a wetsuit would. You're actually wearing, you know, like thick sweater and overalls under your dry suit. And that way you manage to retain heat. But this, the challenge with the dry suit and the reason why you have to learn to use it is that it is one more item that you carry with you that has buoyancy. So you have to deal with adding air inside of your suit and taking air out of your suit. So that's a whole new, let's say, dimension to diving compared to wetsuit that we're used to in Southeast Asia. And how does that work? Because then obviously with that diving, we have our BCD that we use that as our buoyancy control. And then you've got the wetsuit and obviously you need to carry extra weight. Could you go through the whole setup? Because the wetsuit diving is very different from dry suit. The, your entire setup. You would carry a bit more weight with the dry suit. The main challenge is that now your buoyancy control is not only the BCD because you also need to control your buoyancy with the suit. You don't want to have too little air inside or you'll get compressed and your skin will actually get bruised and hurt. And if you go too deep, you're going to be just like these vacuum bags that you can pack your suitcase with when there is no more air inside completely stiff, but also you don't want to have too much air in your suit because if you go on your way back up, then you're going to inflate and shoot up in the diving. The setup is not that difficult at all, but the diving, basically you have two BCDs. That is very interesting. It's fair to say that for any diving, other than stay safe, so you go down, you come back in one piece and healthy. The, the other goal is that when you are underwater is maintaining that neutral buoyancy. Yeah. to get to that. So I think with a dry suit, that's actually quite an interesting setup. I'm a paddy instructor. When I started diving with this dry suit, I felt like I was open water diver again. My buoyancy was just all over compared to a wing. Now the air can be everywhere around your body. And so one of the problems was actually when you're going, that the air would actually go up to my feet. And so my feet would pop up because all the air in the dry suit would go <laughs> to my feet. So the buoyancy in the beginning felt like it was completely different. I was super off balance. I remember the two or three first dives in the pool. I was just, couldn't get the hang of it. And then little by little. Thanks for sharing that. I can see why it's a memorable. It's a memorable because then you, you did it for training purposes. And uh, for Kate diving as well, wow. you're in Shanghai now. And it's a port city, but not really a, a diving destination. Other than diving, what else is keeping you occupied and busy in Shanghai? Before COVID, I was half based in Shanghai and doing photography all around China. And the other half of the time I was diving in the Philippines and, and teaching paddy on an island there. But since COVID started, I've been stuck in China for the last three years. So I've been developing my photography business and now I'm a full-time photographer and I love it, but I miss the split between photography and diving that I had. Shanghai is a very exciting city. It's a huge city, but it's a lot of concrete. It's a lot of business. I miss the sand. I miss the, the fish and the salted water. You get there. You talk about being a full-time photographer. What is your 
most challenging project that you've worked on as a photographer in China? In, in general, starting your own photography business abroad is a pretty interesting challenge on its own. But about particular shoots that came through some Chinese diving students I met in the Philippines who actually have a production agency in Shanghai. It's a funny story. And so a couple of months after meeting in the Philippines, we were both in Shanghai and they hired me to shoot some behind the scenes photos on a big TV commercial video shooting set. And so I thought I'd just come by and shoot a few photos during the day with my camera, uh, nothing big and then deliver. But it turned out that between every video take uh, of the TV commercial, they actually wanted me to, to take like proper advertising photos of the models there on the set, which I was not prepared for. And we didn't have lights, so you need for a photo. And they had a, a green screen full of stains, full of wrinkles. <laughs> it was just like you would have for an amateur photographer in your garage. And this was a shoot for one of Chinese biggest automobile brand, GAC. I had to make do with super low lighting and models who couldn't speak English. And I was struggling a bit with Mandarin. And I spent two weeks editing and retouching after the shoot. Two weeks of my summer holidays back home in France with my family and they were not too happy about it. Took that sounds like it was a nice challenge for you because you had to improvise mm -hmm. and on spot because it's entirely different from the brief that you were given. I guess that's that kind of uh, lost in translation. I was browsing on your website. You've got a few photos of the uh, airport hangar that, that they recognize one of the aircraft. I think it's Bombardier Global Model. What was that shoot about? I'm curious. I assume that was a commercial because then to, to be able to go inside that part of the airport, it must be quite an interesting event. That was really cool. It's funny that you, you pick up on these actually, because I recently added them to the website after clearing authorizations, after deleting the license plate or identification or feature uh, of the jets, because people don't want their private jets to be exposed. It was for a, a company here in Shanghai who's taking care of the maintenance storage and airport services for private jets. So when you want to take off, you actually check in and board in their private hangar and, and same thing when you land. That was a really interesting shoot because I had never been in a private jet before that day. That was just one day when I thought, yeah, this job is interesting. It's taking me places. I remember that day very clearly because I was amused to be shooting something as luxurious as private jets. Especially the day before, I was shooting until 1 a.m. for a private champagne event for Dom Perignon. And so these two days, I felt like I had made it. <laughs> I was just hopefully one day I'm, I'm sipping champagne inside a private jet without my camera. <laughs> and now it's flying. With or without camera. <laughs> exactly. Hopefully in the air. <laughs> The, the reason I picked up, because I'm a bit of aircraft nerd. In my previous life back in London, I did a lot of aircraft financing. And so I visited uh, manufacturers like Airbus in Toulouse and in Hamburg. I've also been to Bombardier mm. in Montreal. It's actually quite funny because now when I go, now I don't travel much in the last few months, but Whenever I go to Hongqiao Airport in Shanghai, the, the bus that takes me from terminal to my flight 
actually goes in front of that private hangar. So every time I see there and I always shoot a text to my client to wave that by the window of the bus. <laughs> Is that hello? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that kind of behavior in my book is totally acceptable. At this point, when I was a trainee in the law firm in London years ago, I started doing a lot of private jet financing. And I remember the boss at that time say to me, aviation is addiction. And it's a chronic one. You'll never get cured. I then yeah. on top of that now, diving is my other addiction. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> We're at two now. <laughs> tell us a bit more about your photography work. You, you obviously have your personal project and the commercial shoots for clients. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's a two different style, different mindsets. So when you're working with the client, what would be your creative and the preparation process? And also the same for when you're doing your personal project, especially if you have any particular ongoing one, I would love to hear a bit more about what you have. Sure. On the commercial side, let's say with clients, it depends on the kind of shoot. Let's say when it's an event or when it's uh, like documentary, there isn't so much preparation apart from maybe a couple of days before you get the brief the location, what's going to happen. Then on the day you do a walkthrough in the morning and just go with a rundown of the event on the more commercial advertising stuff. I really want to make sure I understand exactly what the client wants and if it aligns with what I'm thinking visually, because that's often something that creates disparity in my experience with clients is when you hear words about what the client wants. But then the image you have in your mind can be quite different. So I like to communicate visually uh, a lot. I usually plan the day with my assistant, book, people, props, venues, equipment, studio. And then once I propose some example images, then we know what to build on during the shoot. And having all that structure defined and sanctioned by the client before the shoot allows us to be free on the shooting day. If there is something that happens on the shooting day or a new direction that we find that we really like, then we're able to go off script with the agreement of the client, of course. And if not, we just follow the script that we have. And it usually works quite well that way. For personal project in 2021, I had two exhibitions in Shanghai. One was, was very geometrical, almost abstract architecture photography, which is what I actually started my photography journey with. And then at the end of the year was uh, more portrait series about identity and uh, how we identify or how we feel. And you being the few lucky ones who got to walk around Shanghai for a few days and then shoot the street scenes with your camera. So what has that been like? And in terms of your photographs and the whole event happening in Shanghai? First, it was nice to breathe some fresh air to be out of my apartment, but also, yeah, I took it as an opportunity to try and shoot some photos of something that hopefully is unique or doesn't happen again anytime soon. I didn't stay outside for too long because we were advised, we were allowed to go out, but strongly advised not for too long in order not to bring COVID back to our compound and force everyone to be locked back in for an additional two weeks. 
So I went on a couple of short walks just to document a little bit what's happening outside, because I'm guessing that more than at least 90% of people here are still locked in so they can see from their window, but it's different than being really in the street and, and seeing what's happening on the street level. It was mainly people in hazmat suits all around the streets, like makeshift COVID test centers or doing what volunteers are supposed to do. And then also people putting up fences around apartment building entrances, putting locks on shops. So I tried to shoot all of this along with like overloaded delivery guys trying to get food to the few people who were able to order food. I shot a lot of these street scenes that aren't very usual. And then I tried to reach out to a bunch of media, newspapers, websites to try and publish them, to show what's really happening. I was quite happy because it ended up being published in quite a few media. And so the lockdown wasn't a total waste of time for my photography. That's actually a, a really nice opportunity because you get to document what happens during this particular critical time. It's photojournalism and effectively. And then to be able to publish your work in a large media like The Guardian, South China, Morning Post. These are not tabloid, but newspaper, the credibility of providing the interpretation of a situation. So are you going to do something more with those photos? Because I'm sure that you've taken tons of photos. I've tried to work with a bunch of media and it was a little bit difficult actually, because I'm technically not a journalist. I'm only a photographer. Luckily I was able to shoot for AP, the Associated Press, and through them get published in, yeah, The Guardian and Telegraph and Independent and other media and was able to shoot different series for like Bloomberg and The Economist. Mm -hmm. I'm working at the moment with an illustrator to make it a little series from some photos that I took. This series has a little bit of a different objective than strictly showing the situation as a photojournalistic project. It's, it's a bit of a cuter approach. Like the illustrations that he done are a bit more cartoonish based on my photos. And this little project will come out as animations, short little videos. It's more to show the behind the scene work of the volunteers. A lot of the volunteers just decided to help out and should be thanked for, for their effort. And uh, at least in my personal interactions with all the volunteers, I've never had any problem. People have always been really helpful and, and nice given the circumstances. So this project will be a little more to let's say thanks to the people who didn't have to help, but who decided to put their hazmat suits on and, and, and give a hand. That's beautiful. I'm looking forward to uh, seeing the uh, final product. We're working on a, a series of between 10 and 15 final animations. Actually, I'm really excited because it's a joint project. Three artists working together. This guy, his English name is Happy, which coincidentally is my Chinese name, Kola, which means happy. Um, <laughs> but also means Coca-Cola. So it's me taking the photos, him doing the illustration. And Jamie, my assistant, she's doing the animation. Also, I tried to give a little colorful tone to the photos. Even though the situation is pretty grim, 
I wanted to give it a bit of a color pop feel so that it's not as sad as the situation reflects. And it matches quite well with the cartoonish illustration style that Happy uses. That's nice and upbeat because I think lots of people globally, not just in Shanghai, somehow are affected mentally because of the COVID, because of the, the surrounding uncertainties. And the mental health become one of the major things. I, I love the fact that you managed to find something colorful to enlighten a situation which may have otherwise been perceived as a grim and depressing. Instead, you're really pointing yeah. now that where the silver lining is. I think this is important. Of course, uh, the situation is ridiculous and it's hard to imagine when you're outside and hard to live through when you're inside, but just having the opportunity to see Shanghai empty and full of these little hazmat suits, polar bears <laughs> or marshmallows, like people call them. It's a little silver lining, as you said. When the series are ready, where can people see it? I'm not sure yet. We're still deciding how to exhibit it online. It will be on my Instagram for sure. And then I want to try to find other less traditional mediums to exhibit the series, like an online virtual gallery. I'm open to ideas. Oh, that sounds really exciting. Good luck. You mentioned about the exhibition of geometrical, like of uh, photographs. One thing I picked up when I was um, browsing through your photos, to me, each photographer has something like a signature in your work. And that signature is not like a physical autograph type of signature. It's the signature of like something about you. I like looking at your photo, they're very clean, very logical, very orderly. And although they're clean, yeah. they have a lot of information, details, a lot of details. Mm -hmm. And the way you present it, so some photographer, they could be just minimalist and, and very abstract. And that's their uh, signature. In your case, you hack information in an orderly, logical manner, and yet it's beautiful to look at. It's a nice balance. So my question to you is, uh, what did you do before you became a photographer and a diving instructor? I was an engineer. I actually started this double lifestyle of photography and diving four years ago. Before that, I was an engineer, so I studied mechanical engineering at university and then I worked as an engineer in Canada, in Congo until 2018. So I think that's why it shows on my photos like the geometry, the organization, the composition, and uh, a lot of industrial photography, photos of factories and, and warehouses and, and people working in, the, in industrial environments. Because that's something that, that I thoroughly enjoy to show this behind the scenes, this gritty or dirty behind the scenes of production. I'd like to shoot in a more minimalistic way, but I think if you want to show a lot of details or if you want to show a lot of elements, then you need to organize them. Because if, if there is too many things to look at on a photograph, the impact is lost. So I like to show a lot of things, but then I have to be really uh, conscious and meticulous. It does reflect in, in your work because that meticulousness as well equate that to details that really show the small mm. details 
And um, but yeah, it doesn't yeah. look fishy. It doesn't look disorganized. It doesn't look chaotic. It's really nice and orderly. As we speak, it also reminds me of a book that was given by a friend a long time ago. I think it's called Fountains of Shanghai. It was a collection of photos that must have been taken at least 15 years ago. So when Shanghai was still going through the phase of being redeveloped, and there's a lots of dirt, there's a whole collection of images where you can see poverty and everything is just very chaotic. My friend obviously thought that was a great gift to me, considering that I, I love photography. I was very happy reading through them. I was eating something as I was browsing through the book. Halfway through the book, I just wanted to throw up. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> Too much input. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's the power of the photo. This is why I say the, the signature of the photographer is really embedded in the work. I'm, I'm not a critique, so don't take, don't take me too seriously. I just like to study the psyche of the artist I, behind the work. I hope my website didn't make you throw up. <laughs> no, no, it's the opposite. It's the opposite to that. Trust me, that I hadn't made any other uh, work that gave me that kind of physical reaction. So you, you travel, explore and experience different things. Well, what's just the value that makes you want to do things and live your life this way? Because you obviously have a choice to live a very safe, secure life that you could get a nice job somewhere in the big city. Instead of opting to that kind of lifestyle, you've opted to traveling, exploring the world and seeing many things in life. What, what motivates you to do that? One thing is I'm very curious. There are two major things. The first one is that I just had the opportunity to travel and study abroad when I was an engineering student. And I left when I was uh, 19. I, I went to South America for an exchange. That kind of started me on the, the traveling bug. I love to be somewhere where you are an alien, like you're not in your environment. I love to adapt to new environments. It's super rewarding. And I think that's how I grow the most by learning to adapt to new environments, new people, new cultures, new language, etc. And then after a little while feeling like you're almost like a fish in water and you can adapt and thrive in this foreign environment is incredibly rewarding. And it gives you the confidence to go on to the next one. So to try in a new environment and try in another one and try another one. And I feel like by challenging myself every time to move to a different country, start something new, maybe change a job, maybe change two jobs. I managed to not let the years fly by, but actually it allows me to feel like each year is packed with new experiences and new things and, and interesting events and new learnings. And that's how I want to keep on going. Like now I've been in, in China for about seven, eight years. It's time to go. I need to find something new and, and a new struggle in a good way to, <laughs> to learn more. <laughs> I like the struggle. I, I don't say it in a bad way. When every day you have things that are unexpected and, and that you don't necessarily know how to react to, it, it's amazing. It's exciting every day, which is pretty rare, I think, for most people who maybe 
stay in their home country or stay in the same job for a long time. I don't mind being a bit unstable. I, I need the excitement. When we look at an investment, we expect that the higher the risk, the higher the reward. Do you think that applies to you? I, I don't know about high risk because huh, I think we overestimate risk a lot. Maybe it's also the type of education that I had or the, the social and economic environment uh, in which I grew up. But there, I don't feel like I'm taking high risks by moving to a different place, trying to change careers. For me, I've been very lucky, but I don't think it's that hard to take these risks. Even if you fail or if you don't succeed as, as much as you would have liked, I've never really had a regret or something like a real setback. So I don't know how to go into high risks, but what I know is I'm really happy about the risks I took and unhappy about the risks I didn't take. Okay, I get you. <laughs> and you caught the end of travel back uh, when you turned 19. And so looking at where you are now today and then looking back at your 18-year-old self, what would you tell your 18-year-old self? Make your bed. <laughs> um... <laughs> 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 uh, actually, yeah, make your bed, <laughs> but that wouldn't be the first thing. <laughs> I think that actually the, the main thing I would tell myself is what I just told you uh, about risks is even though I feel like for the last few years I've taken risks, I'm still not really happy about a lot of the risks that I didn't take. I would tell myself, don't think there is only like five career choices in front of you. Don't think there are only five life options in front of you. Uh, because this is very much what I was feeling like when I was 18. I thought, all right, uh, now you got to study at university. Either you become an engineer, either you become a, a marketer, either you become a lawyer. Very common tracks. I would have liked to know that it's all completely flexible. And if you're 18 and you want to move to Costa Rica and become a skydiver, you can. And it's not gonna look bad on your resume. It's not gonna have any kind of negative consequences. The worst thing that can happen is you struggle to do this for a year, you don't succeed, and you'll probably have learned more about life and yourself in five years of university. So I would tell myself to be more open to everything around and, and think less in terms of conventions. You have been listening to Surface Time, Confessions of a Diving Junkie. My guest today was Nico de Cruge, professional photographer and diving instructor. His curiosity and willingness to take risks have taken him to places for new experiences. In the follow-up episode, you will hear more from Nico answering the five insightful questions that I ask all my guests. 
Surface Time is executively produced by Noetic Production and Music by Dress Studio. If you have enjoyed our Surface Time chat, please show us some love and subscribe. And if you would like to share your stories on Surface Time, we would love to hear from you. Please email us to faith at servicetimechat.com. 